0: When you allow yourself to dream and to imagine and to be optimistic and hopeful, what does the world look like? Then the question is, what is a micro prototype that I can contribute to now that takes us like one microscopic step in the direction of that more beautiful world? And then how might I recruit more people and make that experiment more robust over time and so on. But that thing of like taking a micro step in the direction of a macro transformation,
1: this is Audience of One, and I'm your host Spencer Keir. This podcast is a venue and excuse for me to explore my curiosity through combo's leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is Rich Bartlett. Rich helps people grow high trust communities and decentralized organizations. He's the co-founder of Tech Co-op Lumio, Community Building Network, Micro Solidarity Management Consultancy, The Hum, and Director of the Social Impact Collective in Spiral. We talk about micro-solidarity, belonging, being optimistic and pessimistic about the future, increasing agency, committing, and identifying what you're good at. Please enjoy. Why do we need micro-solidarity? What, what is wrong with uh, you know, the, the current organizational structure or norms um, that micro-solidarity see, seeks to solve? I think that a lot of people
0: don't enjoy modern life. I think that, I think there's a lot of people that are um, suffering from a feeling of isolation and meaninglessness, and it doesn't have to be that way. And and like that that in my own life story and people that I've encountered through my travels, it seems like there are people that are kind of playing a different game that they are much more fulfilled, much more generous, much more agentic. You know, much more able to make choices about and their life um, than others. And I, I don't think it's because they're special people or they've got some inherent qualities that other people don't have. Like I don't have this idea that they're like these kind of like uber special people. And I, I, I think it's like they've made choices or they've found themselves in contexts which really create the conditions for flourishing. And I don't have good examples of hierarchical organizations that create the conditions for flourishing. They can create the conditions for like productivity and effectiveness and reliability Ooh. and some things like that. Um, but they often seem to do it at the expense of our humanity. You know, it's like the way that it's, it, it my, one of my friends calls it box life, like you, you're supposed to put, you've, you've got to force yourself into a box that like play this role, um, and Ooh. then, and then you'll be a good cog in the machine and And that it's, yeah, it's a for, not for everyone, but for a lot of us, especially a younger generation, I think the younger people that I talk to, it's kind of dehumanizing to to, um, try and submit yourself to that process. And I think hierarchies are, in a sense, they can be, they don't have to be this way, but they often tend to be kind of like anti-developmental. So, so they reward people for being a sort of reliable unit that, kind of stays the same um, and encu- like you're encouraged to, I, I, I think about it sometimes in terms of, so maybe you've heard this framing like that. You can either be in a relationship between adults and adults, adult relationship or a parent child relationship. And most mm-hmm. hierarchies are structured around a parent child dynamic where the parents, are the people who are super empowered, they get to call the shots and then everyone else, basically they're treated like children. They're treated like mm-hmm. second-class citizens. They have much less power, much less freedom, and that I think we, because we literally were children at some point, because we literally did have parents or caregivers, we kind of know how to play that game. And it's like when you're saying it's natural, like it is familiar. We we have done that, and so it's easy for people to, to to step into that role and do what's expected of them. But it's anti-developmental in the sense that it like keeps us, it keeps us kind of like children. It prevents us from growing to our full potential, and that um. That people are capable of so much more when they liberated from having this kind of metaphorical parent looming over them, controlling them and saying, this is what I expect of you. And if you don't play by the rules, you're going to be punished. And yeah, so there is that piece, which is about development, which is about growth. It's about potential. It's about what we can become when we have the freedom to be who we are meant to become. And then the other half, which maybe is even more important to me, is about this thing of this isolation, atomization that seems to be in, on the increase throughout society, especially in the West, that Absolutely. people 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 don't know their neighbors. People are not in clubs. People are not going to church. Uh, they they're like, I think it's I think it's one of the main causes of of suffering and and like like all the mental health issues that we're we're confronting is like just basically a lack of community, a lack of belonging, and so. These days, it's probably more important to me than I'm able to mention. It's just like, do people have places where they feel they belong? Meaning, I'm accepted for who I am. I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to like play some kind of weird game to perform fitting in. You know, like I can just be myself and know that I'm accepted and celebrated mm-hmm. as I am. I think um, when people find those communities to belong, that's when they flourish and they seem to be. Uh, we're, it's like the tide is going out on communities <laughs> of belonging, and I'm like, come on, let's let's figure out how do we reconstruct that. Like, um, factors have changed economically and socially. Um, you know how common it is that people would have to move now uh, for a job. That's kind of like a normal thing for a lot of people. And when you move, you're like rooted from all the people you went to school with all those friends that you used to have and then as a, as a young now you're like in a new city where you don't know anyone, and how do you get the harder it is to solve new connections and a lot of us are moving continuously you know and there's lots of other factors that do it but i think that that for me it's very meaningful to 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 find ways to reconstruct that village feeling for contemporary people
1: in, in your writing it feels like you're trying to straddle this line between having uh, a not so optimistic view of the future, of the way things are headed. But then understanding that just kind of giving into that and being pessimistic isn't a way to live. Uh, you you still have to kind of fight the good fight uh, and, and put together a optimistic view. It, I guess first, is that an accurate reading? And second, why is it so important to still have this optimistic view? And, and I liked in particular in one of your pieces, you said like you used to Used to subscribe to ideologies or movements that were prefixed with anti x. Uh, and now you want to be more of a pro y type person. But yeah, why is it so important that despite feeling like uh, you're not optimistic about where we're headed, we still need to maintain that perspective?
0: I like that you said I'm
1: straddling these perspectives. i it, it's
0: it's partly like a balancing act like walking the tightrope, and it's partly that I'm changing, I think as well. So like when I first wrote the mm. micro solidarity proposal in twenty eighteen, I was really deep in the in the doomer perspective, and I was really convinced that the combination of like climate change and our energy systems and our weakening social fabric and our undermining of democratic institutions was kind of making a perfect storm um, for bad outcomes, shall we say? And and it felt really important to me to like kind of put the apocalypse on the public radar. I felt like people were, had been ignoring it for a long time. And then things kind of changed, you know, like Extinction Rebellion happened, for example. And I mean, Extinction is in the name. They're like really worried about animal and human extinction and they got that conversation going. And so like when I rewrote the proposal, I don't know what it was, 2021 or something. um, I basically went through and took out all of the apocalyptic framings that had been in there because Mm. I felt, first of all, Maybe in 2018, it was a useful contribution to the public conversation where it felt like it was missing um, and, and time to change. And it didn't, didn't, didn't seem like it, like if I'm not talking about it, no one's talking about it. And that's how I felt in 2018. Uh, whereas now I don't feel that way at all. Uh, in fact, now I think there might be a little bit too much doom in the atmosphere, a little bit mm. too much. Um, it, se- it seems that I've certainly done this. And I think I see other people doing that thing. Um, because we're, I, we're, we're confronted with a great deal of uncertainty. And about the future, I think, I think that's quite clear that, that the, it seems as the future is getting more unpredictable, um, less reliable, more volatile things that used to be fixed and stable are coming unstuck, um, in that state of uncertainty, it's very tempting to just latch onto a, a, a perspective about what the future is going to be like and kind of find certainty in that just artificially construct your uncertainty. So my artificial construction was like, right. oh, civilization is definitely ending. There's no way that we can sustain what we're currently doing. There's no way that we're going to transition our energy system without a like, massive, massive death toll and suffering and world war. And, and, you know, like I had this kind of conviction, which I realized was actually coming from an emotional or psychological place rather than a rational analysis of the fact i I think that is probably Mm -hmm. a pretty common pattern that people take um so i'm not straight up pessimistic about the future like i can imagine that the right combination of technologies would give us for example access to much more clean energy much more effective governance more trust in institutions um more interpersonal care and you know like the sharing economy was supposed to be about sharing. It Was supposed to be about people kind of giving what they had extra to each other, and 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 it, all of us prospering in the process. It just turned into the micro renting economy instead of the sharing economy. But like the idea was good, right? Like that that concept was was animating people.
1: I had never thought about the sharing economy as like the perfect straddling of these two worlds, where it's like uh, that this more communal vision of what life could be like, realizing we have excess, we could share. But then that becoming commoditized. Well, this is
0: this is this is why I get pessimistic, you know, because in theory, this the story about sharing is really exciting, and wow, we're going to be so good in the future. And then in practice, it's like, oh, so all of my friends, instead of like having a spare bed for me to crash on, they now have an Airbnb. Like, <laughs> that, that makes right. me pretty pessimistic. Um, and there's lots, I mean, it, it, you just have to spend a couple of minutes online if you want to, you can find a lot of reasons to be scared about the future. I think. We seem to be actually accelerating our production of existential risk during my lifetime. I don't know why we're doing that as a species, but we seem to be doing that. Like, oh, look, here's a new way that we could kill everyone. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that one. And so I think that's all there. But like you said, I'm much more interested in, I think it's more strategic to focus on what we're for than what we're against. Um, partly that's just because Organizing around what we're against, it's kind of like junk food. It's like empty calories because it's easy yeah, to get people to say, I hate this thing. You know, Donald Trump sucks. Oh, yeah, he's really bad, whatever. Um, but just agreeing on what you're against doesn't actually give you any sense of direction about where you're supposed to go. It just tells you where you're leaving. Mm. And everyone can agree, we're out of here, I'm leaving. It.
1: And maybe that's why they, a lot of these movements flare out as well. I think it, it's easy to rally people around uncertainty and anger and frustration but without that vision of the alternative future uh things just just flare out
0: yeah yeah yeah. and so like it's harder to organize around a pro to say like this is actually a constructive vision that i can imagine um because you have to make compromises with people for one thing and you have to accept the trade-offs and awkwardness and imperfection of what it's actually like to work with people and to like try and make progressive steps in the right direction it's just not quite so it doesn't rouse the passions in the same way as like everything is bad yeah. and it must be burnt down we must dismantle everything like it's just easier to mobilize people on that story
1: and you, but, you have to tell a unifying story to your point it's it's a story that encompasses or embodies all of those uh differences or ways to uh, mediate or reconcile those differences, while also pointing to the future and saying, "Hey, we could all go here together."
0: Mm-hmm. And I think having these kind of orienting stories has has mobilized. Like when I said, when when I look through history and I see that we've like we've tried to do the positive collaboration thing, and then occasionally we fall back into this domination mode. I think it's the it's the stories that really help us do the cooperation. Um, you know, like. For all of its shortcomings, religion right. has really increased cooperation between people that share that religion. Like, if you, mm-hmm. uh, if you a few hundred years ago were traveling from one country to another, uh, you're a foreigner, but you identify as a Christian in a Christian village, like they're going to take care of you. You're going to, you can expect to be t- like that, you've got some rights, you know, like that, 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 the way of extending our shared identity much beyond the tribal boundary. Um, so, we definitely need, we need those kind of stories to orient us. Um, and it's hard and the thing is like I said that the 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 anti-organization is always these short-term flare-ups and so they're kind of attention-grabbing when they happen but they often don't really add up too much in the long term and by contrast having a positive orientation if it's a good one if you actually put in mm-hmm. some deep thought and collaboration and built something that makes a lot of sense I think it's possible to not just for me to commit my whole life to it to a particular purpose but for multiple generations to commit their life to that purpose you know this sort of like cathedral thinking um and it's gonna be intergenerational thinkers that win the day in terms of like what does the future of humanity look like and and I, yeah, I, I, it's not that I want to shape humanity to look like I, the way that I think, but I do want to use my energy and my gift to like contribute something meaningful to the world. And, and that tends to be the way that makes sense to me. I'm just doing what feels funnest, you know, like this is just the, this just feels like a satisfying and fun way to live. It's really that's, the, that's,
1: that's what it seems like it, it ultimately comes back around to. I think people, uh, over rationalize it of course it's always this dualistic thing of like yeah i'm doing this for some greater purpose but also just because it's fun i find meaning and purpose in it um and that i think we've moved away from that being just like a satisfying and okay answer um there so i i think you have a you have like a fundamentally good view on like the natural state of humans uh, you you think we're we're good, well intentioned people, it, and correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, okay, well well let's start there give, then, because give. I think I was I was inferring that was the case. You earlier you said something to the tune of like you think people have, um, and and maybe I'm using people holistically mm. too loosely. Mm. Maybe it's a subset mm. of people, but there are people out there who want to uh, give and be more generative and pro-social and positive some um but whether it's systems or you know particular bad apples that have a a asymmetric um amount of control on the world that they have to like suppress those emotions or fit into mm. this box um mm. so it am i reading into that
0: it's not in, yeah it's Maybe there's just more to the story than that. Like that I think that our, yeah, gener- our, 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 genetic, our genetic inheritance and our evolutionary, you know, our cultural evolution as well as our biological evolution includes we're, we're both the lion and the lamb. You know, we're both. We're like, mm. we are a predator capable of brutality and we are mammals. We're social beings. Like we are only, we're only really happy in connection with other people like that. In, this, in any kind of sustained way, like that's what we're absolutely necessary to our functioning um, as individuals is to be part of collectives. And so like, we've got both of it, both aspects in us and we can, I think, the way that we choose to organize kind of reinforces one tendency or the other. And it happens to be that in our contemporary world, um, most of the schools, many of the families, most of the workplaces reinforce the structure of, there's a small number of people who are super empowered. They have extra responsibility. Everyone else is kind of playing as, like I say, second class, uh, less is expected of them. Um, And that, that is like the root of this dominator attitude. And that it doesn't have to be that way that like, when you go to alternative school, um, families that are organized, I mean, you can see this in cultures, right? Like, if you visit a family in the Netherlands versus in Texas, for example, you're more likely to see in the Netherlands a much more uh, egalitarian way of relating between the family members. We can do things differently and 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 enhance different traits um but I don't take it for granted that like if, if people were just left in their natural state, that'll be nice to each other like i don't I don't think it's as as straightforward as that, but that we can do both, and that to me it seems really meaningful to figure out how do we really scale that cooperative egalitarian instinct um what kind of support structures do we need in place to make that resilient against resource shortages or like xenophobia or like yeah, it looks different to me, and so like I, it feels justified to dehumanize them. Like how do we how do we compensate for those kind of tendencies?
1: Got it. Okay, so so we have this like Jekyll and Hyde to us, and we need social structures to incentivize or encourage uh, certain behaviors. And right now. You would argue we're we're encouraging the wrong behaviors, um, or or the ones that are uh, less valuable to the to the individual or like the the smaller grouping of of humans. At um, least I think
0: we're encouraging people to just be less agentic than they could be. Like to we we kind of treat people like I say like children or like robots or like these very limited cogs in a machine when actually they're like full of creative potential and intelligence and responsiveness and like they're just. A lot of people in these traditional contexts, they just, they leave 90% of their potential on the shelf when they go to work
1: on, on the note of agency, um, which is a topic I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately and how we kind of, um, encourage or even, or, or bring about or even manufacture agency Mm -hmm. for more people, because I think I agree with you. I think we, we suppress it, um. I know you've done a fair amount of kind of instruction, both in person, or maybe you might call it more like guidance, uh, both in person and the more recently online. Um, what are the more, more kind of tactically the tools or the methodologies or the mindsets that you you found that can help, uh, produce agency in people Mm -hmm. or, or help them recognize it?
0: Well, I think it is like you think it's the gatherings, it's the way that we bring people together um, because every group, even if it's a temporary group, like a conference or something like that, um, it's a new social context. And like I said, we're social animals. So like you put me in a different social context and you'll see different behaviors come forward. Um, and so we can design our gatherings to maximize participation um, you know, like a traditional conference, it's like you should come to this conference because we've got some big name speakers and they're very popular, and therefore they must be intelligent and worth listening to. And then you go to this thing and you spend 95% of the day listening, just passively listening stuff you could be listening to twice as fast at home on YouTube, but you're doing it in a room with 500 people for some reason. And then you occasionally have these brilliant conversations in the coffee breaks. Um, and then you just go back to the keynote and you sit there listening again. Like that. That is an extremely low agency way to structure a gathering, not just because people are so often in the passive mode, but even the, like the whole thing about having keynote speakers also encourages your passivity. It's like, like I said, you should listen to them because they're popular. So uh, in contrast, a high agency way to run a conference is you don't have keynote speakers. You have a high level, reasonably vague calling question. Like how might we live in partnership with the natural world? I don't know. Some question that like is vague enough that people like, yeah, I care about that, but it leaves enough openness for lots of different perspectives to come in. And then people who recognize that question in themselves, they're attracted to it. And then you structure it like an unconference or we call it open space technology. There's lots of different approaches to doing this, but like, who have we got in the room? What are they enthusiastic about? What are they curious about? What questions do they have? What needs do they have? What can they offer? And you do a quick facilitated process to assemble an agenda on the fly based on who's in the room and what the library name right now. And you spend the whole time in participation in these like small groups doing these workshopping and discussions and skill shares and, and all this sort of stuff. And you spend the time together like as a collective intelligence with all these little clusters of conversation happening and being remixed and formed into new groups and over the course of if you can do this for two or three days which is my preferred format um, somehow the collective intelligence forms a a wholeness to it, it comes into some kind of unity where even though you're really excited about blockchain and I'm really excited about permaculture, somehow those deep dive conversations they cross pollinate each other and they inform each other Um, and in that context it activates people's agency because the only way to have a satisfying experience there is to know what do you want? What do you care about? What can you contribute? Like it forces you to kind of come up against this instead of like, oh, I recognize that name. That's the most popular speaker here. I'll go to that talk and I'll just consume what they say. And oh yeah, it must be good because everyone else is watching. Like that is such an inhumane way to, inhumane and inefficient way to to structure our gathering. So I think like, there's one. That's one example about a conference. But um, even the way that we structure our meetings, you know, like if it's a, a 90 minute meeting with four or five people in a team, there's ways that you can really invite a lot more participation and a lot more humanity forward from people. Um, there's an attitude. Like if you've got a, if you've got a, um, a formal leadership structure, if you're not doing this like complete anarchistic way. The, the way that I can do things. Say you've got leaders. Leaders, they can be modeling a kind of they can really encourage people. Basically, they can really elevate people's agency. And like when the junior person comes to them with a question, the first thing you can say to the leader is, what do you think? Oh, that's a great idea. Or will some other insights. So <laughs> like, I've got to, How would you deal with the situation? You know, there's a, there's a way of approaching um, this dynamic of seniors and juniors, which is much more empowering and like really activating people's agency. Or you can just treat them, like I say, as second class, as like, oh, they're juniors. They don't really know anything. They should just be my apprentice and follow me around and do what I tell them. And then eventually they'll get to grow up. That, that to me is just a common and very unsatisfying way of doing it. Um, I, th- I think basically, if you know that your job is to activate people's agency, as soon as you have that objective, it's actually really easy to do. It's not like a mysterious, mm. it's not like you need a whole bunch of magic sauce to make that happen. Um, it's just that people don't know that's the job. <laughs> uh, like like right. the conference yeah. example. I think the point of a conference is to get people connected to each other. Um, and to make headway on the ideas that they care about. And if you know that's the job, then you would design, you wouldn't put in an auditorium, for example. You wouldn't put people in an amphitheater because that sucks for connection. But people don't know what the purpose is of the thing they're trying to do. And so then they don't know which
1: design practices to use to get to the outcome. Right, they just know we we need to put on a conference because everybody else is putting on a conference. uh, And it becomes more of a a status game than uh, oriented around learning and and networking true networking not in kind of the, the negative sense um and i think it all ultimately boils down to the point you made earlier about it's either a parent parent relationship or a parent child relationship and once you flip that switch in your mind everything downstream of that becomes a little bit more apparent and i think everything you were talking about uh you could also carry into the classroom structure that we currently have. So kind of the, the preaching at the students do this thing I'm telling you to do rather than let's start with a question either as a group or independently that drives curiosity and interest. And we can it can be interdisciplinary as well, which is something you touched on that like over time, over the course of two or three days, these what were initially, initially might've seemed as like disparate nodes, kind of there, there start to be lines drawn between them and you get this bigger holistic picture um there was something you said maybe 10 minutes ago and this is one one of the shortcomings of this format of like Mm. audio or podcasting is that that i've been thinking a lot about is that it's very linear so there's like 15 different things you say that i want to jump in and and go down a rabbit hole on so i have to i have to circle back to them if i really care about them Um, but you said uh and and you also wrote this in your initial micro solidarity write-up uh, was that you felt like this was a thing that you were you were willing to commit seven plus years of your your life to? Um, and this idea of commitment and focus and long term long term thinking is also something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and having conversations with folks about. Um, and it's something I, I've struggled with. I don't. I think I've maybe found a few things that I could do that with, but haven't felt compelled yet to do it. Okay. So I'm wondering what the Um, what like the felt experience was, or or the conditions that made you say, okay, this is it, this is the thing, like I want to spend a significant period of my my life on. Yeah, I love this question. Um, I did feel it. That's why I wrote it because I was like, I had a really strong
0: intuitive sense that I know that this is going to be a long term thing for me. Um, I said that five years ago. Seven years, definitely, I can easily imagine 10, 15 plus. Um, it's really got a long-term feeling about it. So the, the felt sense for me is I'm I'm a person, I think, that has reasonably um, high dynamic range in my daily moods. Um, that if I was that kind of person, I might... Uh, I'm the kind of person that could potentially be diagnosed as bipolar. I think if if I was interested in getting diagnoses um mm. that i can have really intense creative enthusiastic don't need to sleep manic like ideas coming out of my fingertips and then really depressive hopeless low can't move you know um and now that i'm 38 i've had enough experience piloting this body that i'm familiar with like oh there's an up and then, mm. then there's a down and then there's an up and then there's a down and I don't take it too seriously anymore and and, it, and it's been my experience that the magnitude of the highs tends to match the magnitude of the lows um, so for a big part of my late adolescent I just tried to minimize and say like I'll just try and clamp down and not I'll be kind of numb you know I just won't have intense feelings either way uh, and that was a survival strategy but it was didn't add up to a very meaningful existence um, and then yeah, I've found over the years like a, a more happy medium where like, I've still got these cycles of ups and downs and I just know to tap the brakes a little bit when I'm getting high. You know, like, um, for example, these days I would never work beyond 10 p.m. even though I'm like just so excited about what I'm doing. I just know that actually it's better for me to close the lid on a laptop to like wind down and, and not get into that. So I give you all this background to say I'm familiar with cycles um and as i was r- writing up the micro solidarity proposal i knew that this had an intensity about it that wasn't just a like flash in the pan. next mm-hmm. month i'm going to be low again and i'll move coming out. something else it's like i know that this is this is this is more like a like a locomotive than a little paper dart you know like there's a lot of immense um and i just felt that coming through and so like and and also by naming it out loud, it's kind of a magic spell that makes it more likely to come true as well. You know, it's this kind of like public statement, um, and it helped as well to have a sense of how do I explain it. I didn't write that by myself. Like I'm the author. I wrote. I typed all the words in, but um, the reason that. It went kind of viral, you know, that it was that I wrote it and a lot of people responded to it was because I was writing it from a position of empathy with a lot of people in the world that I know. And it it was built on top of many conversations. And so if I was off on my own weird trip, um, inventing something completely unconventional that no one could recognize, I don't think I'd be able to put sustained energy into it. But because I hadn't confirmation that I have a role to play in a larger system and by publishing that post I got the confirmation like oh my job is to give names to things and to be a kind of shelling point to help coordinate the people who already have shared values and are already walking in this direction but I can just help them be a little bit more effective and find each other and, and maybe mobilize the resources together and stuff like that um, having that sense of like I have a place I have a role to play um really activate kind of long-term commitment that like i don't know another way to do that i couldn't imagine kind of sorting that from my own like inner conviction as an individual like i need that solidarity um and and i you know i, I keep feeling my wedding ring on my finger as i'm talking about commitment too like there's mm. some some i don't know it almost feels countercultural these days to commit to things to to like um to say i'm not I'm not going anywhere, like this is my this is my oath, this is my pledge, like I'm really in it for the long haul. And it's been so fruitful for me to make commitment, like to my wife, but to yeah, to the to the purpose that I'm focused on, like that it kind of simplifies things to it it's like um to me commitment is like closing the door on some very irritating neighbours. <laughs> in a weird way it's like I'm closing the door to a bunch of options, but those options are like constantly stressing me out and like, yeah, making me reconsider things and just to say no, yes, I've actually thought this through well enough so that I can put all those thoughts to bed and just like focus on what's mine to do. Um, it's an incredible luxury, and I, and if I knew how to support people into that long-term commitment, um,
1: I would I would love to do that. The trouble I've had is that I'm I'm also married. Uh, I've been with my. First, my my girlfriend and now my wife for going on 14 years now, and so I, I like in in this relational area of life, I was able to quickly and easy or not she wouldn't say quickly we, we were together for a while before I proposed, but uh, I, I was able to make that commitment um, and have seen the fruits of it as well, and yet I'm not able to kind of translate or transpose that same mindset into this. Um, this other area of life that is an amalgamation of like career creativity, Mm -hmm. um, fulfillment in a work sense. So still working through that.
0: Yeah. So there's, I think there's a point that I, I want to get at here.
1: And I don't know if this is
0: advice for you or if it's just something that I recognize in other people, but, um, I want to emphasize the feedback part of that story that like most people don't know what they're really good at. Um, most of us actually have get attached to a, a personality of like, I'm the best at this thing and you're completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's so helpful to get feedback from other people who know you about like really what are my gifts, what are my talents, what's my contribution here. So like the way that you said that I um, took the words out of your mouth, that's a compliment that I've received many times. And that's something that I know that I have a gift to contribute is that I help people give mm-hmm. words to things. And so I wonder like, what are the compliments that that have really landed for you or like people's appreciation or recognition of you that this is something that you are uniquely, distinctively, um, that you have this like effortless way of contributing. This is one of your talents. And like, maybe you've already got it, but this is maybe advice for listeners then that like having other people help you construct what is your vocation, like what is your distinctive contribution, I think really helps find the commitment because it's like validated by this whole network. It's not just your own weird, disordered personality my own weird disordered personality
1: (laughs) yeah i like i like the terms effortless and kind of externally validated um that that can carry a lot of baggage but i think in the sense that and i was i was having basically the same conversation with david perel on one of my early earlier episodes and the the word i use to describe kind of our inability to understand what it is we're good at is it's almost it's imperceptible to us like it's just our natural way of being, so it's hard for us to be so self-aware or uh, almost sitting outside of ourselves to be able to say that's the thing that I'm good at. That other people, um, to, to also use Naval's phrase, like feels like play to me and work to other people. Um, and and so I haven't I haven't found that yet. So it's great advice. And I I tweeted the other day. Uh, it's really fucking hard to to find that thing you're good at. Um, but I think once you do, it clicks and. And maybe that is where the the commitment is born out of is kind of this intersection of um, maybe I'm starting to reconstruct Ikigai, but uh, is born out of like understanding this is the thing I'm good at and that people are asking me for um, and and can deliver value to myself in the world.
0: When it's working really
1: well, this is what a
0: micro solidarity gathering does because it is so participatory and lightly structured. Um, Your role in the group makes itself clear you kind of discover like oh i'm this organ in the organism i'm this is my contribution Mm. like i'm the one who like takes really brilliant photographs that like helps helps us remember this thing or i'm the one that tells the stories or i'm the one that like is always bringing us back to the science when we're getting carried away with our imaginations or you know like that you discover that with the right group context that that becomes obvious and everyone can point it out and see like oh spencer's not here we're really lacking the spencer shaped talent you know
1: yeah, and that's a meta commentary on why you're working on what you're working on and how, uh, in in your writing, you you uh, a few times said that fellowship and belonging are at least part of, if not entirely, the solution to this meaning crisis. Um, and so you're kind of you're working on solving this problem and have also found that value in your own life and in the work you're doing. I do have a final question that I ask every listener, or I ask every guest which is uh, what's one question you'd leave me and listeners with whether to think about or to act on? I mean, my question
0: at the moment is how do we scale cooperation? I think that my question, though, I don't think that's a question for the listeners. Um, I think the question for the listeners is actually this. So when you allow yourself to dream and to imagine and to be optimistic and hopeful, um, what does the world look like in the in the good case scenario when things go well when when we somehow roll the dice enough times and and manage to avoid these worst existential threats and some of the some of the cards go our way? So what is it tune in first of all? Tune in with that that like, vision that you have for how the world could be awesome, and then then the question is, what is a micro prototype that I can contribute to now? today or well, this week hmm. that takes us like one microscopic step in the direction of that more beautiful world that like lives in my imagination. Like how, how can I test my idealism and my passion and, and my vision uh, with a real world prototype at the micro scale? And 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 then how might I recruit more people? And like, how might I make that experiment more robust over time and so on. But that thing of like, Taking a micro step in the direction of a macro transformation that that has been a question that has motivated me for a very long time and it's really excellent. humbling
1: and yet gives you purpose as well um excellent well rich this was timely uh super thought-provoking i have a lot to chew on now um so thank you so much for your time and i I'm looking at my list of questions or topics here, and we've got through maybe a third of it, so I'm sure there's going to be a second episode in our future.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to episode 15 and 28, and yeah, that was really fun. Thank you. <laughs>